The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. And in turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be in 10, but I, I want to read the last section of 9 as we enter into chapter 10. So two weeks ago, we looked at this text, 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 24. Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline or beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness." Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents." nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful." who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now, at, at first glance, as you read one, or, or chapter 9, 24 to 27, and then move right into chapter 10, at first glance, these sections seem to be fairly unrelated. It says Paul goes from these athletic metaphors, and then shifts uh, immediately to uh, Moses and the wilderness generation. And in in fact, it seems uh, such an abrupt change that uh, some, let's say, less conservative commentators think that there is no relation. And uh, that, that, by the way, is always one of the marks of liberal commentators. They don't work hard at trying to understand the way the text fits together. They just assume that it it doesn't. But the reality is, is that what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 10 
is he's, he's bringing another dimension to his argument, all right? So all of this argument goes back to chapter 8, where he is dealing with going into the temples and eating the food that had been sacrificed to idols, and, and he's, he's, he's urging the Corinthians to act out of love and not to destroy the brother for whom Christ died, not to cause anyone to stumble. And Paul makes this, this, um, this dramatic statement at the end of chapter 8, so if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. And then he moves into what seems unrelated, but really is related, and that is he starts to use himself and his own apostolic ministry as an example of one who has voluntarily given up so-called rights for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of other people. That's what he's, that's what he's compelling the Corinthians to do. Stop, stop thinking that your freedom and your rights are one and the same and that, and that those are yours and that they're untouchable. The fact is, is that we live on a different principle as Christians. We live on the basis of love. And you may think that you've got this knowledge about freedom and rights and authority, but the fact is, is that that kind of knowledge just simply puffs up. It makes arrogant. It makes proud. But it's love that edifies. And so love has to be the motivating factor in the decisions that we make in terms of how they affect other believers. And so Paul then uses himself as an example in 1 Corinthians 9 to demonstrate that he actually has done that very thing. He's refused to take support from the Corinthians, even though he has a right to it. And then he gets down to the end of chapter 9, and what he's doing is he's pointing out to the Corinthians that, that even he himself looks at this Christian life that's in front of him, this race that's been set before him, this course that's just been established. And, and, and you're supposed to read that and realize it's not just Paul that has a course that's set in front of him. It's you that has a course set in front of you. You're supposed to read it in that way. And then when you hear Paul say, so you run in order to win. In other words, get serious about the Christian life and quit living as if you're the only one that matters. That's, that's his point. And in fact, whether it comes to the boxing imagery or the running imagery, the fact is, is that we are running for an imperishable prize, and that's why Paul turns around and says, I beat my body, make it my slave, left, lest after I've preached to others. All of my preaching to others will profit me nothing if I get disqualified from the race. So I beat my body, bring it in subjection, so that after preaching to others, I myself would not be cast away. I would not be reprobate. I would not be disqualified from receiving the imperishable crown. And so th this is, he, he wants the Corinthians to see this. In, in, in so many ways... Um, the, the, the Corinthian church is such an early reflection of what the modern American church would become. 
Don Carson and Scott Haifman, other New Testament scholars that have focused on the Corinthian epistles and Corinth itself have pointed out just the the affluence, the prosperity, the selfishness, the insistence of rights. I mean, all of these things, which really are a reflection of us as a culture as well. And so Paul is, is, is dead earnest in wanting them to take their Christian life seriously, which means you don't just take God seriously, but if you take God seriously, you take your neighbor seriously. You take your brother and sister seriously. There's no such thing as a horizontal Christianity that does not have radical, vertical... I did that backwards. There's no such thing as a vertical Christianity that that, that does not see the radical horizontal implications. You can't claim to love God and then not love your brother. Period. And in fact, John is... The, the, the disciple of love is absolutely clear that if you think you can, then you are absolutely fooling yourself. And so now what Paul's going to do is he's going to shift gears in, in terms of the argument, but it's the same argument. He's just coming at it from a different angle now. And so what he's going to do is he goes from using himself and his own ministry as an example of what he wants the Corinthians to do to now he's going to He's going to actually put it on a little stronger now. And he's going to do that by using the Old Testament. In fact, um, David Garland, he says, The bold Corinthians may not fear the power of idols, but they should indeed fear the wrath of God. Paul's actually going to use Old Testament texts as a threat against the Corinthians and their unrepented idolatry. And so he, um, you know, you talk about boxing imagery, he takes the gloves off once he gets to chapter 10. He's been fairly mild with them up to this point. And so what he's going to do is is, is twice in this section. So th- this section goes from 10.1 to 13. Twice he's going to say, that the Old Testament, that the, the things that he's talking about happened as an example to us and, ha- and they were written for our instruction in verse 6 and verse 11. So what that means is that when Paul looks at the Old Testament, uh, he looks at it as, okay, ready? A Christian book. Okay? The Old Testament is a Christian book. Okay? In fact, if it's simply a Jewish book, then it's not being fully understood because you're supposed to see Christ in the Old Testament. And when you, the minute you see Christ in the Old Testament, you realize what you have is a Christian book. Okay? I would just, I would just mildly warn you, do not make an idol out of the nation Israel. The Bible is not ultimately about a nation. The Bible is about Christ. Okay? So, the Corinthians' attitude towards idol meat in idol temples is extremely dangerous. In fact, it's so dangerous that Paul's going to say at the end, if you think you stand, you better watch out because you're about to fall. 
This is, this is a direct address to their attitude towards the idol meat eaten in the idol temples. But if they would make the right decision and choose the path of love, God actually will help them because he's faithful. And when they face temptation, they have the promise of verse 13. You know, it's funny how often we read verse 13. So when I was a new Christian, um, somebody gave me a, a, a packet of Navigator's memory verses, right? And some of you, when you're new Christians, somebody gave you Navigator's material, right? And man, I memorize all those. And one of the ones you memorize is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And it's a great, by the way, it's a great promise to memorize and it's a great promise to cling to, but it is probably one of the promises that we have extracted from its context, okay? Because the temptation that Paul is, has specifically in mind here is that those who are now going to follow his pattern and choose love over, over their own rights are going to then find out how hard it is to live in love for others instead of self. And it's in that context that God's promise of faithfulness is actually given to them. And so this passage is really a very, very powerful passage. We're only going to look at the first five verses tonight. Paul gives us this uh, basically one example in 1 through 5. And I would, I would summarize the example that he gives from the Old Testament as this, that external privileges do not secure us. Okay? External privileges do not secure us. External privileges, in other words, do not guarantee that you really do belong to the Lord. All right? Now, I'm just going to tell you at the outset, this is something that we all need to hear but it is something that our children especially need to hear because they're brought up with incredible redemptive privileges and they need to hear it. So how do we know that Paul's still talking about the same thing? Well, the answer is the very first word in verse 1. What is that word? For. And the word for... Is, uh, is giving us the grounds of what he's just said from 9, 24 to 27, all right? So, so, so you have to think about it this way. So he starts in, in 9, 24, right? Do you not know those who run, etc.? He concludes, so that I myself will not be disqualified for... Now what he's going to do is he's going to ground that warning, okay, in... His next argument, here's why, think of it this way. Paul's saying, here's why I beat my body, bring it in subjection, and make it my slave, so that after preaching to others, I myself won't be disqualified. Here's why I take that so seriously. And then he enters into chapter 10. And then he makes this statement. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, now, actually, I, some of your Bibles say ignorant, and that's, that's probably better. Unaware is more polite. 
I'd rather you not be unaware, right? But ignorant is better. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Every time I see this, I, the Greek class is probably tired of me saying this. I um, was taking a class in uh, uh, textual criticism at uh, New Orleans Baptist Seminary from a, from a guy, which is a Southern Baptist seminary. And the, the professor is a guy from Mississippi. He's a world-class New Testament scholar, but he's from Mississippi. So the accent and the scholarship seem incongruous. But anyway, he was talking about the importance of properly punctuating and how a comma can, can change the whole meaning of a sentence. And he says, too many Southern Baptist pastors have put the comma in the wrong place. I do not want you, comma, ignorant brethren. All right? <laughs> now, Paul is Paul's not saying, I don't want you ignorant Corinthians. You guys are driving me crazy. He may have thought that from time to time. But what he's doing is he's stating something that he says regularly. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant of these certain things. But you have to understand that when Paul says that... Um, what he's doing is he's, he's indicating that he knows that they know something, but he wants to make sure that they fully grasp it. He knows that they may know something, but in knowing it, they actually may be ignorant because they don't see the implications for themselves. You you, you understand that that there's a difference between, between cognitively knowing something and then seeing the way that that truth impacts and shapes me personally, Right? You have, to, you have to understand there's a huge difference between knowing like that and knowing. I'm reading a, a biography on Jonathan Edwards and, and uh, was struck this morning. So Edwards goes to a congregational church in Northampton, which, of course, was his maternal grandfather's congregation, Solomon Stoddard. Solomon Stoddard had often been called the Pope of the Connecticut River Valley, or the Protestant Pope um, in New England. He was a very powerful man, and he pastored that church for 60 years. 60 years. And so Edwards comes in as the grandson, and, um, and, and of course, Stoddard had kind of ruled not just the church, but really the entire community with... with you know, with, with sort of an iron hand, you know. And Edwards comes in, and, and he's assistant, and he's there. And then a couple of years later, a year and a half later, Stoddard dies, right? So, through, by the way, throughout colonial New England, dozens of sermons were preached in honor of Solomon Stoddard after he dies. This is, this is how much the impact the man had. And so, so Edwards then is now the pastor of this church that had the same pastor for 60 years. And what he started to realize was that, one, the people 
were very, very proud of the very fine church and very fine pastor that they had. And in fact, not only were they proud about it, but they had begun to really take the the, the privileges of Stoddard's ministry and belonging to such a, a, a stable church. They started to take it for granted in such a way that when Stoddard died, um, Edwards began to notice all kinds of of, of um, uh, hypocrisy and loose living, and people were, um, on the one hand, still proud of their spiritual heritage and their church connection, but on the other hand, really ha- w- had less and less interest in in true religion, right? In a true relationship with God. And so what Edward starts doing is Edward starts preaching sermons that deal with hypocrisy and self-deceit because he understood that the people knew the truth that had been preached for 60 years, but that it wasn't a personal reality for them anymore. And they started to rest on their spiritual laurels as opposed to really pursuing the God who had been preached to them for all those decades. And so Edwards right away saw that there was this, there was this disparity between what they knew cognitively and what they knew as personal reality. And you know, that is, that is always, always the burden of somebody that is trying to bring the word of God to bear on people's lives. Okay? It's, it is, it is the burden that uh, every time I, I preach, that's one of the burdens that I have. And the reason is, is because you know that there are people listening who are hearing what you're saying, but it doesn't really matter to them. And when you realize that, that the things in God's word are, are of eternal importance... Nothing more important. Heaven, hell, the just, the unjust, Christ, life, death. These are the things that matter now and forever. And you're preaching those things. You're speaking those things. You're teaching those things out of the Bible. And you know that there are some people, and for them, that is uh, the water of life. It's the bread come down out of heaven, and they eat it, and they drink it, and it's theirs, and they love it. But you also know that there are people that are sitting there, and they don't care. They don't care what the Bible says about God, and they don't care what the Bible says about their life, and they don't care about any of that. They just sit there and listen because it's the polite thing to do, or because mom and dad made them come, or because this is what they do on Sundays. But you realize that there is this huge disparity between what they know, what they're hearing, and what they may even consent to believe, and the fact that it doesn't do a darn thing for their soul. That's why Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Connect the dots. 
See how it applies to you. This sermon isn't about your neighbor. It's not about your spouse. It's not about your parents. It's not about your kids. It's about you. Take it to heart. It's for you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. This is about you. In most things in life, it's, it's not appropriate nor moral to think that it's all about me. But when the word of God comes to you, you better realize right now it's all about you. So Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Ignorance will lead to your destruction. You don't connect the dots, it could lead to your destruction. You don't think about how this applies to me, that can lead to your destruction. What an awful day that last day will be when God has mercifully and graciously allowed you to hear the words of life and the warnings and the promises. And you thought year after year, not now, Not now, later, later, and then later never comes. And all of the the urgings and all of the appeals that you heard year after year will come down on you like an avalanche, haunting you. Because you didn't believe when it was the day of salvation. There's nothing more important. Nothing. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Then notice the next phrase. That our fathers... Our fathers? Our fathers. Now, Paul could have said, my fathers, right? Because Paul's Jewish. But he doesn't. He says, our fathers. And, of course, who's he talking about? He's talking about the wilderness generation that actually left the land of Egypt under Moses and then wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And he calls them our fathers. It's an interesting phrase, but actually it's one that's very, very telling about Paul's view of the church and the church's relationship to Israel's history. So why does Paul say our fathers? Why does Paul speak so inclusively with the Corinthians who are predominantly Gentile? Well, because believers in Christ, even though... Gentile, if they're in Christ, Christ is the seed of Abraham, those who are believers in Christ 
are the children of Abraham, Galatians 3.29. In fact, Paul makes a point in Romans 4.21 that God actually justified Abraham while he, was unjustified, while he was uncircumcised so that he'd be the father of those who believe who are uncircumcised. In other words, the Gentiles. So for Paul, as he, as he thinks about Old Testament history, he sees this, this level of continuity between the covenant people of God. Now, they're not exactly the same, but you can at least say this. Their story is now our story. That's his point. Their story, because of our common connection. So if you're a Gentile and you've been, you've been grafted in as a wild olive branch into that olive tree, now, guess what? That story's your story. There's a, there's a connection there. And, and so for Paul, it's very easy for him to say, so our fathers, so you remember, you remember our ancestors, the ones that left Egypt? Right? And so he then says this, and this is really peculiar. They were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. Now, under the cloud, you might remember that God manifests his presence to his people through the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. What's interesting is that the cloud appears at the end of Exodus 13. And God actually tells Moses that he will be in that cloud for the people. And the cloud is for their guidance, but it's also for their protection. Because, by the way, when the people of God, when the Israelites are passing through the Red Sea, you know what God does? God, as the cloud stands between the Israelites passing through and the Egyptians coming up. And so this this whole language of under the cloud, uh, Exodus 13, Exodus 14, and by the way, all throughout the rest of their wilderness wandering, God promises to be present with them, guiding them as in his presence. And so the, the cloud is a, a, a direct demonstration of God's presence and his protection of the Israelites at the time of the Exodus and then throughout the entire wilderness wandering. And then it says they were under the cloud and then, that, I take that to mean under the provision and protection of the cloud, and then they pass through the sea. Which, of course, is obviously a reference to the Red Sea, Exodus 14, which is the Old Testament redemptive event, right? If you think of redemption in the Bible, Old and New Testaments, the Old Testament, you have lots of God's redeeming acts, but the chief, right, the head, the most important redemptive act in the Old Testament is what? The Exodus, Right? That's it. And so Paul says, so they, our fathers, they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. Right? The dictionary of the Old Testament on the Pentateuch says, these manifestations of God's glory gave the Israelites concrete evidence that they had truly experienced an encounter with God. That's, that's the point. And how many were under the cloud? 
All. How many pass through the sea? All. Right? Next. And all were baptized into Moses. Where have you ever read that language before? The answer is nowhere. Right? It's not Old Testament terminology. Uh, the rabbis never talked about being baptized into Moses. Uh, Paul, by the way, Paul doesn't talk about being baptized into Moses except right here. And I would say that this, this language is, is clearly not typical Pauline language. But what is he doing? He's adapting the Old Testament passage in a way to show the parallel between the Old Testament Israelites' experience and the New Testament Christians' experience. So he's adapting language. He's using language that he doesn't use in other places. And so when he says, all were baptized into Moses, what is he talking about? This is not, um, they didn't stop at the Red Sea and then dunk people in the Red Sea while they were passing through and say, I baptize you in the name of Moses. Nobody did that, all right? They were in a hurry, all right? And so this, this phrase is not a sacramental phrase, okay? The Exodus, what I I mean is baptized into Moses doesn't have anything to do ultimately with baptism, okay? The phrase itself is based on the fact that the Exodus is is the type, okay, the pattern of redemption, And Moses is a type of Christ as a redeemer, all right? So you have two types that are working together, Exodus and Christ, and just as Christians are in fact baptized into Christ, in a sense you could say that the Israelites were baptized into their leader slash redeemer, Moses, and the Exodus event itself did what? Separated them and identified them with Moses, the man of God. In a real sense, that's sort of what baptism does, right? It is, it is an act of separation and it is an act of identification. I'm identifying myself with Christ. And so Paul's just making these parallels and how many of them were baptized into Moses? And the answer is all of them. And then Paul says they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. That is, their deliverance marked them out as God's people. That's the point. The deliverance itself, the the uh, the cloud that drew near, that was for the visible people of God. If you were under that cloud, or to use Paul's language, if you were baptized into Moses into the cloud, if you were baptized into Moses into the sea, then you were, you were as it were, identified as the people of God. Make sense? The point is that how many who left 
Egypt were marked and identified by these external events? And the answer is, all of them. And through these events, they became visibly attached to Moses. Right? Now, um, even though they're visibly attached to God and to Moses, that will not prevent them, of course, from grumbling against God and Moses. But Paul's point is simply this. In terms of God's deliverance, in terms of God's leadership through Moses, um, all of them actually are identified with those events marked out as God's people. Just as... Those who profess to be Christians and are baptized are visibly attached to Christ and to his saving work and to his people. Now, understand clearly what Paul's getting at and what I'm trying to explain. The act of baptism, analogous to the passing through the sea, is an external act. Identifying with Moses was what happened for everybody that went through the exodus. It was an external identification. It was an external participation in God's redemption. Paul's analogy is this. It's the same thing for Christians. There is an external participation. When a person is baptized, so we're not Roman Catholic. We do not believe ex opere operato, by virtue of the thing performed, something really happens. If an unconverted person goes into the baptistry and is baptized, they come out as an unconverted person. If an unconverted person eats the Lord's Supper, they are done, when they're finished digesting, they're still an unconverted person. A person who may profess faith in the waters of baptism may visibly identify themselves with Christ. They may publicly participate in the means of grace. And Paul says, just like everybody that left Egypt. He says, then all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. So you know what Paul's done, right? He's moved from baptism to now what? What? Yeah, the Lord's table, Lord's Supper, communion. Now, what he does is he says, they all ate the same spiritual food. Exodus 16, he's talking about the manna that came down from heaven. Now, it's important that that we realize when he says spiritual food... He's not, it is so funny what, what some commentators will do with passages like this. They would say spiritual food is, was food that conveyed the spirit. Okay, And then, of course, they want to draw an analogy 
to the Lord's table. Okay? So that somehow eating spiritual food is you're eating something real, but it's an eating something real that something spiritual is conveyed, the Spirit's conveyed. It's not what Paul is saying when he says they all ate the same spiritual food, spiritual in the sense that it was supernatural. Exodus 16.4, I will cause manna to come down from heaven. Right? So God miraculously, supernaturally provides the food. In that sense, it's spiritual. But because it's supernaturally provided, it also is a provision of revelation about God. And in that sense, it's spiritual too. So in other words, the manna, so when the Israelites got up the next morning after God promises to make manna come down out of heaven, they they get up and they walk outside their tents and you know what they say? What is it? And you know what that sounds like in Hebrew? Mana. What is it? (laughs) And so, so manna, Manna just means, what is it? It's a question. And so they were told, you collect it up, and you can, you know, you can do all kinds of stuff with it, right? You remember, some of you remember Keith Green. So you want to go back to Egypt. But, yeah, manna bread, yeah. But manna bread, um, yeah, manna burgers, Manna waffles, right? So they could do all kinds of stuff with it. They could boil it. They could, they could, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they didn't deep fry it. But anyway, so, but it was, it was provision. Now, it was spiritual in the sense that it came supernaturally from God, but it was also spiritual because if they had eyes to see, it was more than just bread from heaven. It was provision from their faithful God. So two kinds of Israelites at this point, right? The one that gets up and goes, hmm, what is it? Okay, I'm, I'm full now. Or the kind that gets up and says, what is it? God provided. Blessed be his name, right? So they, and so who ate the manna? They all ate the manna. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. Oh, now this is interesting. They all drank the same spiritual drink. By the way, when he says same food, same drink, he's not saying the same as us. There are commentators that want to stretch that that says that basically when the Children of Israel were eating the bread and drinking the water that was provided that they were doing the same thing we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper. It's not the same thing. What he's saying is, is that all of them ate the same stuff, right? The super spiritual ones didn't get like uh, manna on steroids. They got the same manna as the unspiritual Israelites, and the unspiritual Israelites drank the same water as the spiritual Israelites. They all drank the same water. They all ate the same food. And so manna comes in Exodus 16, and then you have the incident at Meribah in Exodus 17. And I would really love to preach Exodus 17 for you because I've done that before. It's such a powerful passage. The typology is utterly amazing, all right? Uh, Maybe I'll do it sometime again soon. Um, But 
You remember what happens. Uh, the people are grumbling because they have no water. And so God has the leaders of Israel gather around at a rock, and then God says, I'll be on that rock. So God is putting himself in the place of the accused because the people have uh, a, 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 a contention, uh, a protest, a case against God. They're going to kill Moses, but it's really against God. So God puts himself on the dock, and the people of Israel come around, and the staff representing what? Not only the rulership of Israel, but also the staff is is an instrument of punishment. Moses is supposed to do what? You strike the rock. Typology is amazing. So who's actually, at least in, in terms of theophany, on the rock? Well, God is. He's struck. Who deserves to be struck? Well, it's the Israelites. God substitutes himself as the one who's struck, and then what does he do? He pours living water out of that rock. And they live. Wow. It's magnificent. That's how they got their water. Now, Paul says something that we don't have explicitly stated in Exodus or Numbers. And that is the rock followed him. You ever remember reading the rock followed him? It's not like that's where Bob Dylan got like a rolling stone, right? But, Another rock appears in Numbers 20. And what if it's the same rock? The idea that the rock followed them is an implication that the rock that is in Exodus 17 is the same rock that's in Numbers 20, which Exodus 17 is the beginning of their journey, Numbers 20 is the end of their journey, and so the implication is maybe that rock followed them. In rabbinic tradition, there was a well, a rock well, that followed the Israelites. By the way, in Numbers 20, Moses is not supposed to to strike the rock, is he? He's supposed to speak to it. And Moses not only fails to simply speak to the rock, he strikes it twice in anger against the Israelites. He ruined the type. Rock had already been struck. All you got to do now is speak to it. By the way, it would be that very event that would prevent Moses from going into the land of promise. Vic and I stood right on top of Mount Pisgah 
which is where God let Moses see the promised land and where Moses died. So, amazing thing. And then Paul says something else that is even more remarkable. And the rock was Christ. Yeah, how does Paul say that? And the rock was Christ? Well, let me just let me just sketch for you quickly why I think Paul can say that. Because first of all, in fact, when you get home tonight, before you go to bed, read Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, Moses calls God, and God calls himself Israel's rock, no less than five or six times. Okay? He is their rock. Now, by the way, part of that is their rebellion against him. Okay? But God himself is identified as his people's rock. Uh, Psalm 19.14 O oh Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer. Now, so for Paul, the transition from seeing things in the Old Testament that speak of Yahweh or speak of Israel's God and then making the transition to that speaking about Christ is a transition that Paul makes all the time. Why? Because Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And what is said about God in the Old Covenant Scriptures is actually being said about Christ. And the New Testament writers, by the way, repeatedly tell us these things. Okay? Repeatedly. So, Isaiah chapter 6, what does Isaiah see? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, I saw Adonai high and lifted up, and his, the train of his robe filled the temple, right? And then, what does John say in John 12? Isaiah said these things because he spoke about him, that is Christ. John understands Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 to be a vision of Christ, Or how about this? Do not fear their fear, but sanctify Yahweh in your heart, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then Peter says, do not, that's Isaiah 8, do not fear their fear, but sanctify Christ as Lord as Yahweh, in your heart. Okay. So the New Testament does this all the time. All the time. You shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, because he, Jesus, shall save his people from their sins. You're going to name him Yahweh saves because he's going to save his people from their sins. Why? Because he's Yahweh. Confessing Jesus as Lord, by the way, is just confessing that he's Yahweh. It's not just confessing that he's boss. So the, Old, the New Testament does this over and over and over again. So for Paul to look at Exodus 17 and say, and that rock was Christ, 
That's just the way that Paul reads the Old Testament. He's got these, he's got these magnificent Christocentric lenses to where he sees the second person of the Godhead all throughout the Old Testament. And so for him, the rock was Christ. But there's, there's a little bit more, right? So not only is, is God the rock, so, so obviously Christ is the rock, but it is that rock in the wilderness that's when it's struck, it ends up giving life to the people. And so I think that for, for Paul, the, the, the connection ends up being clear. Christ in that sense is just the fulfillment of what was going on in Exodus chapter 17. So the Israelites, were incredibly blessed by God's presence and his protection, and they were separated, they were identified with him. They visibly took part of that deliverance, and they took part in God's man, his the redeemer, Moses. It's all good, right? All good. Well, unless you don't want to read verse 5. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. By the way, you know what verse 5, you know what we call that? An understatement. Nevertheless. So you you understand that nevertheless means in light of all of these unbelievable external privileges, nevertheless, in spite of all of that, in spite of the exodus, in spite of Moses, in spite of the sea, in spite of the cloud, in spite of the manna, in spite of the rock that followed them and sustained them the whole way, in spite of all of that, nevertheless, God was not well pleased with most of them. Well, here's what he means by most of them. All of them except two. I'd say that's most. With the exception of Joshua and Caleb, everyone in that generation that was age 20 and above died in the wilderness. When it says God was not pleased, so, so for God to be well pleased, right, means that we're in his favor, we're in his grace, kept by his love. For him not to be well pleased is actually to invoke divine displeasure, divine anger. Okay. You know, we don't say stuff like this in 2018 in America, but it needs to be said, God is angry with some of you. He really is. And you have no refuge, no safety, no protection in Christ. You're self-willed, unrepentant, and a rebel against God, and God is angry with you. good news is you don't have to walk out tonight with God still being angry with you. So God was not well pleased with most of them. Of course, this is a reference now to Numbers 13, 14 episode at Kadesh Barnea where he swears that that generation will not enter into the land of promise because of their evil report of unbelief. 
Remember the story, don't need to rehearse it. Moses sends the spies in to the land. Twelve spies representing the twelve tribes. They go in, and guess what? The land is exactly like God says it's going to be. Exactly. They come back, gather the people. People can't wait. They see all these, you know, these massive grapes, and they're like, whoa. And so then all of these people gather, and then the ten spies, ten of the twelve say, uh, it, it is just like God said, but... The Nephilim are there. They make us look like grasshoppers. We can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb's nonsense. God said we could do it. If God said we could do it, we can do it. And so the people want to stone Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and Aaron. You brought us out of Egypt that magnificent place where we had so much fun, eating leeks and onions by the Nile, all the fish we could eat, almost always a vacation, except when we weren't making bricks without straw. And God says, by the way, God says two things in Numbers 14. Step aside, Moses. Let me kill all of them. Remember that part? Step aside, Moses. I will kill all of them. And I will make you into a great nation. And Moses says, well, that's great. Call me when you're done, because I'm tired of these people too. Not exactly. Moses says, you can't do that. You have a promise to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And plus, if they hear back in Egypt that you killed all of them, you know what they're going to say? He brought them out of Egypt but couldn't take them into the promised land. And that's going to affect your reputation. And then God says in Numbers 14, 21, I swear, I swear, as I live, the whole earth will be filled with my glory. But then he says, everyone 20 years and older. Why 20 years and older? 20 years and older, 20 years was the age of war. If you were 20, you were required to go to war when Israel went to war. It's not the age of accountability, it was the age of war. And so God says that whole generation that acts in unbelief and was unwilling to Take me at my word. So this I put New American Standard says, laid them low in the wilderness. Scattered them. They were scattered. You know what that means? He littered the wilderness with their corpses. That's what it means. Think about it. 600,000 men leave Egypt. Roughly 2 million. That's a, that, by the way, that's a conservative estimate. You take those 20 years upwards. So, say, 75%. 
of how many people? You take that and the number of deaths, spread it out over, technically they're in the wilderness for 38 years. They are burying people every day. Every day of their wilderness wandering, they are leaving a trail of buried Israelite corpses because God was displeased with most of them. So, one commentator says, this is exhibit A of those who failed to obtain the prize. That seems almost like an understatement too to me. Strong warning, and of course, if this is written for our instruction, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to say, oh, look at them. So, so just a couple things real fast. First of all, Old Testament is a Christian book understood, understand its continuity between what God did then and what God does now. It's a book that speaks to us today. It's relevant to us today. 10.6, 10.11. Paul's going to use more examples from the Old Testament. We'll get into those next week. But his point in this first section is powerful. And listen carefully. External participation in the benefits of the covenant community does not secure a right relationship with God. An idolater is an idolater even if they've been baptized and eat the Lord's Supper. And Paul's point, God doesn't tolerate our idolatry any more than he tolerated theirs. That's God's point. And so, what Paul sort of navigates through in chapter 9, he now just lets the hammer fall in chapter 10. You better be serious and repent of your idolatry. Because if you don't think that somehow that example of that wilderness generation doesn't apply to you. You've got another thing coming. Totally have another thing coming. Do you understand that that Christianity is not just something that you say you believe. And Jesus is not just someone you say you believe in. Christianity is not just being a church member. Christianity is not just being baptized. And and I'm not downplaying the importance of baptism at all. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are vitally important. But you can be baptized every day of your life. And if you're unregenerate, you remain unregenerate. And you can eat and drink the Lord's Supper until you can't eat or drink anymore. 
And if your heart isn't right with God, it does you no good. In fact, it does you harm. It makes you the ultimate hypocrite. Because to be baptized is to say, Christ has changed my life and my heart is his. And to eat the bread and to drink the cup is to say, Christ in his life and his death is mine. And he's everything to me. And so those two realities aren't true. The external, the external participation doesn't mean a thing. Do you know that hell will be filled with baptized people? And hell will be filled with people that took the bread when it was passed by and took the cup. And so Paul says, take heed. Take your sin seriously. Take your Savior seriously. And stop playing games. Because God knows. He knows those who are his. And he knows those who are full of it. He knows the heart. And he knows your heart. And he knows it right now. More perfectly than you know it yourself. You know what that should do? That should... That should humble us and compel us to run to Christ for mercy. Even if you're absolutely certain that you are a real Christian, you know what you should do tonight? Run to Christ for mercy. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for uh, comforting passages And we thank you for convicting passages. We thank you for hard passages. And we pray that your word would not return void. Lord, we pray for those that are merely in external participation mode. And we pray that you would arrest them tonight. And that you would bring them into submission to the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would spare us from hypocrisy and externalism and formalism. And we pray, Father, that our relationship with you would be a genuine one of the heart, not just jumping through the hoops. Father, we realize that ultimately the only reason that you could be well-pleased with us is because we're in Christ. May we truly be in him. In his name we pray, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.